guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hey, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm doing really good. I've told you a little about what's going on at my house this weekend and yes. super excited. So we've talked a little about our kids and being preteens and how they don't always like us. And I'm hoping I get points this weekend because it's a surprise, but Mandy and I, our friend Marcella, who was a listener we met in Atlanta and became friends with, her daughter and my daughter became friends. And now they're coming down to visit Orlando and she's coming to my house to like hang out with my daughter. My daughter has no idea. So, so exciting. It is. And like I told her it was another friend that was coming down because like they're at the age now you can't trick them very well and be like, hey, clean up your room for no reason. It's right. like clean yeah. up your room. Someone's <laughs> coming over. Like you have to do some things. It would just be like nothing would be done. And she'd be like, why didn't you tell me anything? So yeah. I'm lying and saying <laughs> another friend, but they'll be here in a couple hours. And I'm so excited. And I wonder how long she'll be nice to me. Do you think I'll get an hour, two? Um, I mean, an evening? Uh, probably the whole <laughs> evening. I would hope maybe for the whole evening. That's what I'm hoping for for you. <laughs> uh, I know. The things I will do for kindness. No, I'm just kidding. But it'll be a lot of fun. It'll it 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 should be fun. The kids are, you know, her daughter's really excited, so I think it'll yeah. be it'll be awesome. Yeah. It's and summer is just wild to try and keep kids occupied. Are you do you yeah. guys feel like that? I do feel that way. Yes, I do. My um, kids, as I, I think I said last week, we were going to be doing some different camps this summer. So yeah. we've kind of finally gotten all that organized and they will be starting not this coming week, but the following week for their first camp. So they're really excited to go out and do stuff like that and have sleepovers too. Hopefully we're trying to organize one with some of our friends as well. But it's so crazy because sleepovers are just not really, I feel like not as common anymore. I don't know. I felt like when I was growing up, we used to just, it was no big deal. Like every weekend every we'd weekend. be like, all right, yeah, we'd be like, bye mom. Like, or, you know, somebody was saying somewhere, but it's just not really a thing anymore. And yeah, so it is exciting whenever you can kind of arrange those kind of things for your kids and it makes you feel nostalgic and all that. So yeah, I'm totally. sure you guys will have a great time. Yeah, I know. Um, Marcel was like, I don't know that she's going to sleep. And I'm like, oh yeah, I don't think my daughter will eat. Like, it's just going to be two girls excited watching anime because they're now into anime. So it'll be, it'll be fun. <laughs> it's a lot of like me learning anime just to like talk to my daughter. And it's really, it's just a journey. Parenting is yeah. a journey. And that's what we need on a shirt. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> don't know where you're going and hope you make it there. Maybe right. somebody will tell you if you get there. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, so we'll get into the story for this week. Today's episode really doesn't need a real introduction. Um, we're going to be discussing a high-profile murder case that took place in 2001, and it was high-profile because it involved the murder of a celebrity's wife. So that sounds very interesting, and it is very interesting, but you know, I am still Mandy, so I <laughs> don't, I did not know a lot about this story. I'll be honest, to be fair, I don't know a lot about, like, current celebrities that are in the media a lot right now. So I definitely don't know a lot about celebrities that were in, you know, in on TV and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Question. Yes. Do you know that Ben and Jennifer are back together? Jennifer is back together. 
I did not know that. Oh my gosh, yes. They are back together, <laughs> Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, and they're all in Miami and all this stuff. So, okay, yeah, you're right. You really don't know what's going on. I really don't. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. So this week I got the opportunity to learn about a new celebrity that I had really not heard much about before. I have heard the name Robert Blake before, but didn't really know a lot um, about him or his work or anything that happened in this story. So this was kind of a new case to me. Maybe it will be a new case to you. Maybe you've heard it before. I know a little about this case. Not a ton. He's not like somebody that was really on my radar too much, of course, until he, you know, this this all happened, this transpired. But I learned a ton through the research in this stuff I had no idea about. So even if you think you've heard stuff about this story, it's there's details I had absolutely no clue about. And I pride myself in knowing a little about a lot. And I yeah. did not know very much about this at all. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. All right. So we'll get right into it. Robert Blake wasn't exactly the Tom Cruise of his day, but back in the mid seventies, he became pretty well known for his role on the TV show Beretta. He played the leading role as a police detective in this series. But before that, he actually got his real start as a child actor. Robert Blake was actually born Michael James Gubitosi and later changed his name to Robert Blake. He was born on September 18, 1933 in New Jersey to his parents, James and Elizabeth, and they were both on a song and dance team, and they raised their kids in a home that really valued the arts. Song and dance team, didn't know that was really a thing. I thought that was like a mo thing that you saw in movies, but I guess right. that makes sense. That, yeah, that was a real thing. They were on a song and dance team. It was kind of like the original TikTokers. Like they yeah, were that yeah. kind of. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I don't think you're really that far off though. <laughs> so Robert and his two siblings also worked as movie extras. And Robert was the most successful out of these three children. According to allegations Robert later made, his home life as a child was really not that great. He said that he grew up with abusive parents who locked him in a closet and made him eat off the floor, quote, like a dog. He also said that he was subject to physical, psychological, and sexual abuse as a child. When Robert was six years old, he was cast in a comedy series by MGM called Our Gang, also known as Little Rascals. I guess this is like an old Little Rascals? It's is the it original. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's it is the same thing though, kind yeah, of. Yeah, it's okay. It's in black and white. I love these. My dad used to play these all the time. I can't say I remember him per se, but you know the alfalfas and spankies and all of them. I remember all of those. Right. So he worked on that series. He filmed dozens of episodes for the show over a five year period. It was during this time that he changed his stage name to Bobby Blake. Although he was Italian, when Robert was young, he was often cast as Mexican or Native American characters. Acting was very successful for Robert, so he continued to work as a child actor and landed a role in the Red Rider series playing the Native American sidekick Little Beaver. In the 1950s, Robert served in the military but returned to acting as soon as he got out. In the 60s, he married his first wife, Sandra Carey, who was also an actor, who he had two children with named Noah and Delilah. Robert's acting career was going really strong at this time. He played the part of Perry Smith in the movie Cold Blood, and this performance really put him on the map in terms of acting. From 1975 to 1978, he starred in Beretta, as we said, and won an Emmy for his role in this show. When the show was canceled after three and a half seasons, Robert took it really hard, and he became depressed and began using alcohol. 
A couple of years later, Robert had some renewed luck in acting, and by 1985, he landed another TV show role on the show Helltown, and he played Father Noah Rivers for eight episodes, but ultimately that show was not very successful and it ended. While he was working on this show, he and Sandra got divorced. That was in 1983. After a long break from acting work, Robert returned to the screen in 1993 when he starred in a made-for-TV movie called Judgment Day. This was sort of the beginning of the end for his acting career, though. He only acted in two more things after this, and he retired completely from acting in 1997. So at this point in time, Roberts had this successful career in acting, and he was really living his life as a bachelor. That's kind of all you really need to know on the background of Robert Blake before we get into what's the heart of this story. In 1999, Robert was hanging out at a jazz club when he meets this woman named Bonnie Lee Bakley. She was more than 20 years younger than him at 43 years old, but they began having a sexual relationship. Bonnie was known for her charm and her good looks, and as a teenager, she even dropped out of school to enroll in the Barbizon School of Modeling. Back when I knew Barbizon, I thought that was a thing you could do on the weekends (laughs) that I was not successful in. I did not know you dropped out of school to join Barbizon. Right. (laughs) So there she realized, though, that she didn't really have quite the right look for the type of modeling she wanted to do. So she then dropped out of modeling and started modeling for nudist publications. She was really beautiful, though, and she had quite a way with men. She was great at drawing a guy in and then using her looks to her advantage for personal gain to the detriment of the man that she was conning. For Bonnie, Robert was just another brick in the wall. They met at a birthday party that was being held at this jazz club with comedian Will Jordan that was lined up for entertainment. Bonnie knew Will. They had met in New Jersey when she was in her 20s. Bonnie noticed Robert at the party, but she had no idea who he was. She didn't even know he was an actor, but everyone was paying attention to him, so her interest was really piqued. So she strikes up a conversation with him, and he offered to see her back to the hotel. When they arrived at the hotel, they had sex in Robert's car, even though they're at a hotel. But, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) after that, Bonnie continued to visit Robert on a regular basis, but she would always pay her own way. She got her own flights and her own hotel rooms. And during this period of time, Bonnie was still living with one of her ex-husbands, a man by the name of Paul, and their daughter named Deborah. She was also dating another man, Christian Brando. And if you're like, oh, Christian Brando, who's that? Yeah, that's Marlon Brando's son. (laughs) And if this sounds like a lot to balance, we're just getting started. The story of Bonnie's life is so fascinating, and we're really just scratching the surface at this point. Bonnie Lee Bakley was born on June 7, 1956 in New Jersey to parents Edward and Marjorie. Her dad Edward's job was listed as tree surgeon, which I had to Google because I was like, what in the world is a tree surgeon? But I guess it's just like an arborist, like a tree service person. I've just never heard it called a tree surgeon before. And I wish that we still said things like that in 2021. I love that. Can I tell you, I think I have heard that before because I think there was, uh, this goes back to true crime. It always says there was a guy who was a tree surgeon who would like hide up in people's trees and then he would break into their house and kill them. Or at least it happened one time. Yeah, and I think he brought them back into a tree. Could be confusing my stories. There was a lot going on. And we I know I brought this story up to you one time, and then we were like, this is way too awful. We can't do it. But yeah, it was like a tree surgeon. So you could go around calling yourself doctor. That's how you get the ladies. Right. You're a doctor. You don't have to say you work in a tree. You just are a doctor. So that's what Bonnie's father did for a living. He was a tree surgeon. He was also an alcoholic, and according to Bonnie's sister Marjorie, they had challenging childhoods. Bonnie later alleged that her father tried to 
get fresh with her when she was about seven years old, right around the time that her parents ended up getting divorced. Following the divorce, Bonnie went to live with her grandmother, but this was not an ideal arrangement for a child. Her grandma lived in a small trailer and was extremely financially frugal and played gatekeeper on things like bath time. She rarely allowed Bonnie to even take a bath. Bonnie started being teased at school because she had greasy hair and she didn't have the nicest clothes. And instead of letting these bullies get to her, Bonnie really took a different attitude. And it was one where she wanted to grow up and just really show them. She wanted to become a movie star and just to really prove that that wasn't really her. At some point, Bonnie's father went to jail where he actually passed away, and Bonnie's mother had remarried and moved away as well at this point, leaving Bonnie pretty much on her own. As we said before, she dropped out of high school at 16 to pursue modeling, but she ended up dropping out of that as well. So I guess Barbizon was not all that. Melissa, you didn't miss out on anything. (laughs) (laughs) I was rejected. There's a difference. She at least tried. When Bonnie was 21, she did something that not everyone does. She married her first cousin. They lived in Little Rock, and as crazy as it sounds, they had two children together named Glenn and Holly. And Bonnie was actually a really good mom to these two kids. She was very loving, affectionate, and attentive. Also, when she was 21, I think this may have been before the kids came along, Bonnie still tried to get modeling jobs, and she sent a photo of herself into Hustler magazine. And they actually did later feature her in a special section of the magazine, called (laughs) Beaver Hunt, which I just thought was so interesting. And it kind of reminded me too about how just different it is. We don't have, do they still have magazines like that? Or does everyone just use the internet now? (laughs) I think the internet's the main one, but I think they still have Hustler and Playboy and all of that stuff. I think they do, but they might not, they might only publish online. I mean, I haven't looked for one in a while, so (laughs) I don't know for sure. I really don't know either. Okay, so it was sometime in Bonnie's early 20s when she realized that she could con men into giving her things that she wanted and needed with relative ease. She came up with this idea to solicit herself in swinger magazines and men's magazines and use different names and fake professions and some new sob story about why she needed money. An example of one of her ads read, quote, men wanted any age from anywhere to write to a young, single, pretty girl. I promise to answer all. I'm 22, 36, 24, 35, 127 pounds. I can travel if you can't in order to meet. I am sad and lonely due to a recent breakup with someone I was engaged to. I need your letters to cheer me up. Looks are unimportant as well as age, and I do love older men mostly. Hurry and write. End quote. I'm sort of obsessed with uh, how she described herself because you said I'm 26, 36, 24, 35. And I know that the 22 <laughs> was uh, her age, but it sounded like maybe she had two sets of right. bosoms. <laughs> yeah. In another ad, she claimed that she needed money for nursing school tuition. And Bonnie got responses from a lot of older men to these ads. And she would then send them back some risque photos of herself and the men would fall right at her feet. Bonnie put significant time and effort into writing back and forth with these men and leaving them on. It became really a lifestyle for her. She would claim that she was going to go visit them, but then she never would. There was always an excuse or a problem, and it always required more money, such as that her car was broken and she needed money to fix it or she wouldn't be able to make the trip to visit these men. 
Then she would send a letter saying that she made it halfway there when her car broke down again, and she would ask for more money for a bus or a plane fare. And she would continue on like this until these men caught on, which I guess was probably pretty easy to do before cell phones were a thing. Right. Um, if you just like a few days later, like, oh yeah, I was halfway there. I was driving halfway there and then my car broke down. So now I'm home and I'm writing you this letter. But you wouldn't be able to get away with that kind of a, a scam, I feel like, in 2021 because people have instant connection, you know, so you wouldn't go days without knowing what happened to somebody. Right. But I do feel like Neve Shulman could be standing in the wings uh, of this catfish situation. And right. <laughs> <laughs> you could see this back then. <laughs> yeah. So, but even if these men did catch on that there was a, a scam going on, there was nothing they could really do about it anyways, because Bonnie was using P.O. boxes across the country in these communications, and she was often using a fake name and fake details about herself, so how would anybody really even find her? She became so good at scamming that her husband and cousin, Paul, was able to quit his job. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's a new term. Yes, her husband, husband Paul, <laughs> was able to quit his job and become a stay-at-home dad. So he stayed home and helped take care of the kids and also helped Bonnie run her business, if you can call it that. Um, and so as Bonnie got more comfortable and more well-versed in scamming, her cons became more and more elaborate. She started stealing credit cards and she had fake IDs for over 50 different aliases. After Bonnie and Paul got divorced, Bonnie went on a marriage and divorcing spree. She actually married at least seven men, all of them older, and that she had conned in some way, and then she would swindle them out of their savings and their life insurance. And we have so much more to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. There's something about a simple piece of jewelry that elevates any outfit, and Ana Luisa Jewelry has the pieces that are just as unique as you are. Ana Luisa not only has gorgeous jewelry, but it's made from recycled materials whenever possible, so not only do you feel beautiful in your jewelry and good about what you're wearing, but you can get it at a price you can feel great about thanks to their 10% discount when you visit Ana Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A dot com slash moms and use our code MOMS. I love a good pair of earrings, but what I really love is something that can be versatile that I can wear when I dress up or just run to the grocery store, which is why I'm obsessed with the Hannah Marble Blue Earrings that are handcrafted enamel earrings coated in 14 karat gold, and I get complimented on them every time I wear them. They're so dainty, but have this beautiful, vibrant blue color, and they're sure to catch anyone's eye. Plus, they're so comfortable to wear all day long, which is great since a lot of times with earrings, I hit the two or three hour mark and I'm just ripping them out of my ears as quickly as humanly possible. And we feel great about sharing with you guys because not only is Ana Luisa jewelry beautiful and timeless, but its fair pricing means jewelry starts at just $39. Plus, when you go to analuisa.com slash moms and use our code moms, you get 10% off, which is great because you'll want to check back every Friday when their new jewelry collections are released. AnnaLuisa.com slash moms. Go treat yourself and your loved ones and use our code moms to get 10% off. We absolutely recommend them. They're a great brand making beautiful, sustainable jewelry. Go check out AnnaLuisa.com slash moms. That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A dot com slash moms, code moms. 
Sometimes life can feel a little out of control, and when that happens, it's nice to have something out there that you feel like you can control. For me, I'm looking at controlling my eating habits. When I'm nervous or anxious, all I want to do is stuff my face with sweet and salty stuff. But this year, I'm trying to make better choices, like reaching for an apple instead of the party-sized bag of Doritos, which is why I really love Noom. Noom is a habit-changing solution that helps users like me learn to develop a new relationship with food through their personalized courses. For me, so much of making better decisions is just breaking bad habits and creating new and healthy ones, and Noom helps me do just that. What I love about Noom is that it doesn't tell me what to do or what not to do. Instead, it teaches me how to pull from my own knowledge I learned along the way to make better choices for myself. And with one of the biggest and most accurate food databases out there, you can track your meal habits, visualize portion sizes, and even see calorie density at a glance. Plus, Noom doesn't take a ton of your time. It only takes about 10 minutes a day to find success with Noom. Over the past year, I've really made my health a priority, and when I'm taking better care of my body, it's amazing how much better I feel overall. For me, there's no magic number on the scale. I just want to be the best me I can for myself and my family. And having the Noom community, as well as the Noom personally assigned goal specialist, I feel like I can take on the day whatever life throws at me. Plus, knowing that over 80% of Noomers finish this program and over 60% have stuck to it for at least a year is the icing on the cake. There's a science to getting healthier. It's called Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. Learn how to eat again with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. Ready to learn how to live healthier? Sign up for Noom today at N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking a little about Bonnie and this business that she had uh, started for herself where she was conning men basically and uh, sending pictures of herself and they would send her money. And that's really how she was looking to provide for herself. And after years of living this lifestyle, Bonnie really wanted more. She wanted to go after someone big. She wanted to date Jerry Lee Lewis. Yes, that Jerry Lee Lewis the goodness gracious great balls of fire Jerry Lee Lewis, who, fun fact, was also married to his first cousin, so they had that in common right <laughs> off the bat. <laughs> so Bonnie thought that this was a 100% realistic goal. So she starts tracking him down and attending his shows all across the country. She manages to become friends with Jerry's sister, and she later bribes the guards to let her backstage at one of the shows. She was persistent and determined, to put it lightly. It sounds more like stalking, but in any of the sources that we had, they don't actually call it that. And her plan worked out, sort of. She did date Lewis occasionally and even moved Paul, who's her husband, <laughs> and their two kids to Memphis so she could be closer to Jerry. But things go a little sideways when Bonnie gets pregnant and claims that Jerry's the father. She even names his baby Jerry Lee. According to Jerry Lee Lewis, he was out of the country when the baby was conceived, and so he knew the child wasn't his. And he was right. A DNA test later proved that he was not the father. Something that is really bizarre is after these results come in, Bonnie has his baby's name changed from Jerry Lee to Deborah Galrin, suggesting that the baby was fathered by Bonnie's husband, but it's unknown whether that's actually true. Bonnie quickly moves on with her life after the relationship ended with Jerry Lee Lewis. Her conning business was thriving, and she was smart with the money that she made, and she had really set herself up well. She bought two houses in Memphis and owned several lots. She would go to Hollywood frequently, and she tried to jumpstart a singing and acting career using the name Lee Bonnie. 
she actually recorded a song. Uh, it is available on the World Wide Web, <laughs> and you can listen. And she, that wasn't her thing. She was very good at conning men, not so great at singing. <laughs> so she gives up this dream and decides that if she can't be a star herself, she would just have to find a star to be with her. And this kind of makes me sad because it's, it comes from this whole childhood thing of like, people make fun of me. I don't have these right. things. You know, my life is really hard. I'm going to be somebody someday. And so realizing she might not have the talent to do it, she's going to hook herself up with somebody that does. It's sad. One might think that Bonnie managed to sneak her way into Hollywood parties with big time A-listers, but no, the celebrities Bonnie went after were the ones who were in jail. She started writing letters to celebrities in the pen, including Robert Downey Jr., who was in prison on drug-related charges. I think it was whenever he stuck into somebody's house and they found them, him sleeping in their bed. It was a oh, really I sad thing. I didn't know thing. that. I didn't know about yeah, that Yeah, it was wow. sad. It was whenever he was uh, on drugs during that time. And they like basically called and were like, I think Robert Downey Jr. is in my kid's bed. And so- Can you imagine- sad, but- Getting that call, though? Oh, my gosh. No. Um, (laughs) But he turned his life around, which is amazing. So everyone, though, she wrote to in prison saw through this and suspected her plan, so it never worked out. Bonnie then had her crosshairs on Marlon Brando's son that we spoke about earlier, a guy by the name of Christian. Christian Brando, though, had a really troubling history. He had actually killed somebody, so there's that. He actually murdered his half-sister's boyfriend. He pleaded guilty and spent five years in jail. What a sentence. And during his stay in prison, Bonnie sent Christian nude photos. And when he was released, she'd visit him in Washington. I feel like you're not allowed to send nude photos anymore. Maybe this was done. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely did not think that was allowed. Bonnie also bought a nice house in California and she went to L.A. a lot. She was constantly looking for a celebrity to be her main boo. In 1998, Bonnie was finally busted for running her scams. She was charged in Arkansas with fraud and given five years probation, during which time she was not allowed to leave the state of Arkansas. It was in August of 1999 that Bonnie attended the party where she met Robert Blake, and at that point, she'd long been on the prowl for a celebrity to call her very own. She was still seeing Christian Brando at this time. So Bonnie and Robert Blake started seeing each other on occasion, and eventually Bonnie had a pregnancy scare. She told Robert she thought she might be pregnant, and he got mad. He stopped talking to her and just really did not want that to be the case. He was not looking to have a child with her. So she told him that she was not pregnant, and then they reconciled. At this point, she said that she was taking birth control, and she promised that she would not get pregnant. But in reality, she was running one of her biggest cons yet. Not only was she not taking birth control, she was actually taking a drug to enhance her fertility and tracking her cycle religiously, purposely trying to get pregnant with Robert's baby. I don't know why you would do this after the first reaction he had was not positive. Right, right. It seems very risky. Yeah. So she went to great lengths to try for this pregnancy. After reading in a magazine article that covering a tampon in cellophane and inserting it after sex would increase the chance of pregnancy... That's what she did. In September 2000, Bonnie called up a tabloid and alleged that she was, in fact, pregnant with Robert Blake's child. She told Robert this time it was true. She was definitely pregnant. No lies. Robert offered to give Bonnie $250,000 to have an abortion, but Bonnie refused. So Robert cut her off. He changed his phone numbers and stopped communicating with her entirely. After Robert abandoned her while she was pregnant with his baby, Bonnie decided to lie and tell Christian that the baby was his. 
According to what she told a friend, she thought Christian was better looking, younger, nicer, and quote, more malleable, whatever that means. And she said that she liked him more than Robert anyway. So she said, you know, Robert's just going to get older and worse looking and she's already in love with Christian. So why not? Let's just tell Christian that this is his baby. So Bonnie's ex-husband, Paul, thought she should just stick with Robert and stay away from Christian because he was literally a convicted killer and Robert was, of course, a star. In June of 2000, Bonnie finally gave birth to Robert's baby. It was a little girl, and she named the baby Christian Shannon Brando and hoped that it would make Robert jealous. She actually wanted Robert to be in the baby's life, and she wanted Robert to be in her life for that matter. After the baby was born, she didn't like the idea of Christian being the father anymore, so she sent pictures of the baby to Robert and later flew to L.A. with the baby to visit him. Once Robert met his daughter, his attitude completely changed. When the baby was just a few months old, they had a DNA test done to find out if Robert was truly the father of the baby, and he was. Once again, Bonnie changed her child's name once she realized that it was Robert's baby, and when Robert was confirmed as the biological dad, the baby's name was changed to Rosie Lenore Sophia Blake. Robert also decided he wanted custody, and he hired a PI who suggested that he should simply convince Bonnie to just leave the baby with him for a few days and then not give the baby back, which is terrible, Um, terrible advice for a private (laughs) investigator to give somebody. I I don't even know (laughs) why a PI would be the one to give you that. That just seems like any random person could. That does not seem like PI's (laughs) wheelhouse. What in the world? So that's actually what Robert did, though. He tells Bonnie that they should leave the baby Rosie with a nanny. And the nanny was actually a previous assistant of Robert's who is in on this plan to essentially kidnap this child. So Robert also enlisted the help of his bodyguard to hide under the stairs in case anything went wrong, which kidnapping a child is wrong. Uh, So once Robert and Bonnie were gone, the fake nanny took the baby to her own house. So while Robert and Bonnie were at the restaurant, these two men who claim to be police officers show up and they say that Bonnie's under arrest for a parole violation. Because remember, she's not supposed to be leaving the state of Arkansas. Bonnie goes outside with these two officers and they put her in the back of a car. Robert reassured her, though, that he would take care of the baby until she figured everything out. One of the officers told Bonnie that he didn't really feel like doing the paperwork on this, so if she would just agree to go to Arkansas immediately and speak to her parole officer, they wouldn't take her to jail. Oh, sure. Seems legit. (laughs) But I just love that Bonnie's like the queen of cons, and she's like, okay. Okay. Like, okay, you're falling for this? It's crazy. So Bonnie agrees, though. The officers then drive her to the airport, which is very nice of them. So after she was gone, Robert picks up Rosie from the fake nanny and takes her to his adult daughter's house. As soon as Bonnie goes back to Arkansas, she calls her probation officer, who already knew she was in L.A. Bonnie realizes that Roberts played her and tricked her. The men who arrested her in L.A., as we know now, were not even police officers. They were private investigators pretending to be police officers. Apparently, P.I.'s back then would just do about anything. They would do whatever you wanted. They were the original task rabbit. They would do anything you needed them to do. So Bonnie was placed on house arrest for breaking the terms of her probation, but she was later given permission from her probation officer to travel back to L.A. to get her infant daughter. While she's there, she files a police report accusing Robert of kidnapping and demanded that he pay her child support. So it seems like, you know, that's a lot of crazy drama that goes on between them that September. But in October, things got even more weird. 
Robert actually proposed to Bonnie to the shock of many. His friends really thought this was a tactic to try and help get custody of Rosie. Robert allegedly had worked out a plan with Bonnie where he would keep the baby in California while Bonnie went back to Arkansas to complete her probation, which just had a few more months left. But in the meantime, Robert was being very shady and contacting everyone he could think of to prevent Bonnie from being able to get Rosie back from him. Despite all this, Robert and Bonnie, the happy couple, were married in November of 2000. A friend of Bonnie's said that marrying Robert and having his child was literally a dream come true for Bonnie. It's what she always wanted. After the two were married, Bonnie returned to Arkansas and lived with her daughter, Holly, until her probation ended in January of 2001. From there, she spends a few months traveling around before she goes back to L.A., and she arrives in L.A. in April of 2001. A short time later, Bonnie, Robert, and Robert's bodyguard take a trip to Arizona, and while they're on this trip, Robert tries to get Bonnie to sign some paperwork regarding the baby. He tells her it's a document that gives his adult daughter custody of the baby in the event that something would happen to Bonnie and Robert. Bonnie, though... You can't con a conner all the time. She <laughs> refuses to sign this. She thinks it's very suspect, and she's just like, nope, I don't like where this is going. So when they return from this trip, Bonnie moves out of Robert's house and into his guest house. According to her sister Marjorie, she was really scared, and she actually asked Marjorie to record their conversations. Bonnie told numerous others that she feared Robert and said that if anything happened to her, to look into him. And then, about a week after they returned from the Arizona trip, something did happen. Bonnie and Robert went to dinner on May 4th, 2001 at Vitello's restaurant in L.A. They sat in a booth and had a pretty uneventful dinner, and then they left the restaurant at around 9.30 p.m. They made their way back to Robert's car, which was a 1991 Dodge Stealth, and they got ready to head home. Robert suddenly realized that he must have left his gun, a 38 Smith & Wesson, in the restaurant, which I don't understand how that would happen, even in, I mean, this was only in 2001. There, it's just crazy to me that he would be like, oh, I just left that in the, you know, in the restaurant. Oopsie Let me go back and get it. Yeah, just, that's just a crazy thing to accidentally leave somewhere. So he rolled down the car windows and threw the keys inside with Bonnie while he went back in to look around the table for his gun. He did find it. It was on the floor under the table. But when he got back to his car is when he says this nightmare unfolded. Bonnie was slumped onto the center console, and Robert claims that he believes she was asleep. But when he spoke to her and tried to shake her, she didn't move. And then Robert noticed that there was blood. He ran from the car to find help. And he actually ran across the street and knocked on the door of a home, but nobody answered. So he went to another house nearby and told the man that answered the door that his wife was hurt and he needed to call 911. The man dialed 911 for him while Robert ran back to the restaurant and asked for a doctor. He was given a glass of water and a nurse who was in the restaurant went out to his car to see what was going on. A short time later, the paramedics arrived and it was learned that Bonnie had been shot twice, once in her right shoulder and the fatal shot was into her cheek. She was just 44 years old at the time of her death, leaving behind her four children, 22-year-old Glenn, 20-year-old Holly, 8-year-old Deborah, and 11-month-old Rosie. Officers quickly focused their attention on Robert, obviously. Bonnie had been shot in his car, which was interestingly parked a block and a half from the restaurant they had eaten at, next to a construction site and about 10 to 12 feet behind a dumpster. Shortly after paramedics arrived, Robert became physically sick and vomited near the dumpster, but witnesses had mixed feelings about Robert's demeanor and his reaction. 
Some felt that his reaction was genuine and that he was in shock, and others, including some police officers, felt that Robert was actually acting a little strange. One witness, a doctor, who was walking to his car, had seen Robert screaming for help and saying, she's bleeding, help, call 911. But this doctor, who has personally heard dozens of people crying for help, thought that Robert was behaving in a pretty peculiar way. So he did not approach him. And instead, he stood on the curb nearby and just watched. And he even continued watching after the paramedics arrived. This doctor said that Robert was sitting far away from the car and kept asking the paramedics over and over, what's wrong with her? Which this doctor thought was pretty strange because typically when something like this happens, the family is wanting to be right there. And it's almost like, you know, they have to be almost pried away from their loved ones so that the experts can work on them. And Robert never once asked police what happened to Bonnie. The only thing he said was he was tired and he wanted to go home and lie down. Too bad for him because police wanted to take him to the station for questioning. Robert really played up his old age. He kept saying he's 67 years old and he just could not make it through this. He kept changing the subjects when officers tried to steer the conversation back to what happened that night. They managed to piece together some of the story, though. Robert said he had parked his car and the two of them walked to the restaurant. He was armed with his revolver, but once they were seated, he took the gun out of his holster and put it beside him on this booth under his sweatshirt. Robert alleged that he carried a gun anytime he was with Bonnie because of all the enemies she'd made conning different men throughout her life. He worried that she was a target. When they got to the car and he realized he didn't have the gun, he goes inside to look and sees that the gun must have fallen off the bench. It was actually on the floor. He says he returns to the car and when he gets there, he sees that Bonnie's dead. He also suggested that this could have possibly been a hit on Bonnie, which isn't the craziest suggestion knowing, you know, that considering she has, her past. Yeah. 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 She's she's made some people very, very unhappy. So investigators, though, still had questions. Why did this couple park a block and a half from the restaurant? Robert says, hey, you know, there's no valet there and the parking lot's always full. It's on the weekend. So they park further away, which I can understand that because I'm not searching yeah. for a parking spot. I am ha- gladly drive far away or park far away. So later that evening, around 11.55, Robert had his hand swabbed for traces of gun residue. But it had been hours since 911 was called, and officers hadn't even made an attempt at shielding his hands from contamination while he was in the police car or at the station. Gunshot residue was found on his hands and his clothing, which weren't even collected from him until the next day. But questions arose about that when it was learned that the clothes were placed in an open cardboard box in the trunk of a police car for two days. This all sounds like botched police work, not, not oh, yeah. criminal uh, botched police work, but where it's kind of like, man, if you're not going through the chain of command that they, they know to do, this can throw everything, you know, right. it can mess everything up. So the residue that was found on his hands was such a small amount, it would have been 20 times more if he'd shot a gun that recently. The tiny amount that they found, they said, could have easily come from Robert simply handling his own gun that night. All in all, these residue tests in this case aren't really very damning. Further investigation proved that the shots that killed Bonnie were fired from outside of the vehicle. There was no soot left around the gunshot wounds, which meant that the shooter wasn't super close when the gun was fired, but they were close enough that there was gunshot residue on the seat and on Bonnie's hands. Investigators believe the shooter crouched down beside the car out of Bonnie's sight, shot her in the shoulder, and then shot her in the face. 
To confuse things even more, police determine that the shots were not fired from Roberts, Smith, and Wesson that he was carrying that night, which really must have been a shock to everyone because you're thinking, this is such a crazy story. You know, it all happened so quickly. He says he went, you know, really fast and then came back and she was, had been shot. So you're, they're probably thinking it's going to be easy. We're going to test it against his gun. It's going to be his boom case closed. Well, in this case, they determined that it wasn't, the shots were not fired from the gun that Robert had that night. The murder weapon ended up being recovered from a dumpster near where Robert had parked the car that night. And it was a World War II 9mm Walter P38 pistol that was absolutely filthy. It was covered in dirt and motor oil. There were no fingerprints found on the gun, and it was never linked to anybody. But Robert's behavior was still very troubling, to say the least. The day after the murder, he stopped cooperating with officers and only would speak to them through his attorney. But nevertheless, officers searched Robert's house. They did find some questionable things in there too, like a box of ammo that had three missing rounds and there were three rounds that were involved in Bonnie's death. But this never ended up going anywhere because the police realized that the box of ammo actually had a mix of different size ammo. So they were like, yeah, there is three missing, but it could have been any number. It could have been of any caliber. It doesn't really say anything. They also found messages written on the wall that said, quote, I'm not going down. And they found $12,000 in cash stored in a dresser. Robert's attorney wasted no time turning the attention away from his client. Two days after Bonnie was killed, his attorney went on TV and said on the record that Bonnie's death was the result of a personal hit on her life due to her shady past and the history of running scams. He worked really hard to spin her death in a way that appeared like Robert was innocent. And tabloids were even asking Robert, you know, if the people in Hollywood were treating him nicely and how he was doing and really giving him sympathy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it was about six days after the murder that things really started to heat up in the investigation. Hopefully this next part isn't too hard to follow because it does kind of get a little wild and crazy. So officers had contacted Robert's bodyguard, Earl Caldwell, for an interview. Of course, you know, his bodyguard spends a lot of time with him, has spent a lot of time with Bonnie, so he's going to be a really important person that they want to talk to. At the exact same time that Earl showed up to the station for this interview, a call came in from a friend of Bonnie's, and they were giving a tip. And they said they had some information about Earl Caldwell that the police might be interested in. This is right as he's walking through their door. So they're like, yeah, we definitely want to hear what you have to say. So she told them about the trip that they had taken to Arizona where Robert tried to get Bonnie to sign the papers regarding their daughter and said that Bonnie told her that she believed Earl was supposed to actually kill her on that trip. She said that Earl got sick became actually physically ill and that Bonnie thought it was because of nerves because he was supposed to kill her, but then he couldn't go through with it. Conveniently for Earl, he showed up at the police station with a lawyer in tow, and this was an attorney that Robert had actually paid for. So Earl did talk to the police and he told his story and said that, you know, he first met Robert when Robert brought his car into a car stereo store that Earl was working at. And eventually Earl started doing handyman jobs for Robert. But in 2000, he hired him on full time as his bodyguard. Much of what Earl told the police came across as being very scripted and planned out. He said that Bonnie was constantly looking over her shoulder and scared of an ex-boyfriend of hers, and he said he thought Robert was actually the intended hit and that Bonnie was killed by accident, and he even suggested that Bonnie was the one who hired the hitman herself to kill Robert, and I guess in his version of things, the hitman killed Bonnie instead. 
It doesn't make any sense. And the police, yeah, the police were even like, (laughs) no, that's not what happened here. Uh, So they asked him about, you know, this trip to Arizona and said, well, why did you get sick on this trip? And you had, you know, all this nervousness. And Earl said it was the altitude. It was bothering me. It made me feel really unwell. But the police were like, hey, you were at Sequoia Park and they knew that the altitude was not that high. They're not enough to be feeling sick over it. So finally, one of the bizarre comments Earl made out of nowhere was that Robert and Bonnie were very lovey-dovey, and one of the officers kind of like scoffed at it and almost, you know, almost laughed out loud and said, you know, well, isn't that kind of a weird thing to say considering Bonnie and Robert slept in separate houses? So they were like, you know, no, they weren't very lovey-dovey. Like at this point, they're thinking Earl's whole story, like he's just completely full of it. So the police had enough of this, and they asked Earl if he would take a polygraph test. And Earl said, no, he didn't believe in them and didn't trust them, and he was not going to cooperate with the police and take a polygraph test. And we have so much more to cover in this story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. If you want funny, you watch The Office. And if you want comfortable shoes, you wear Rothy's. And don't just take our word for it. Rothy's has surveyed literally thousands of their customers. And the number one word used to describe a pair of Rothy's is comfy. And we couldn't agree more. From the moment I stepped into my Rothy's sneakers in steel gray, I became a believer. Rothy's are the first shoes I've ever worn that required zero break-in period. If you look through my closet, I have several pairs of shoes that I have to put those little pads in the back to keep from getting blisters no matter how many times I wear them, which is why my Rothy's are my number one shoe. I wear them all the time. Whether I'm wearing shorts, skirts, or leggings, my Rothy's go with everything, which is great because I wear them with literally everything. And if you're wondering how Rothy's can make shoes that are both adorable and comfortable, it's all thanks to how they're made. Their seamless design is made from materials like plastic water bottles, plus they are fully machine washable, like take them off your feet and just throw them in the washer kind of washable. With tons of styles and colors, there will always be a new must-have pair of Rothy's waiting for you. With shoes this amazing, Pop Sugar even named Rothy's one of the most comfortable and cute flats you'll never tire of wearing. And we wholeheartedly agree. Upgrade your closet with washable, sustainable, stylish shoes and bags from Rothy's. Plus, they just launched men's shoes, so make sure to check them out for you or the guy in your life. Head to rothys.com slash moms to find your new favorites today. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash moms. Every night before bed, I grab my copy of Moby Dick and read 100 pages before I go to sleep. Just kidding. The truth is, at bedtime, you're more likely to find me eating snacks in the closet while playing a quick round of Best Fiends and hiding from my kids. Best Fiends is a perfect way for me to unwind after a long day of kids, work, or whatever life decided to hit me with that day, all while still using my brain in a way that leaves me feeling refreshingly challenged. While there are other matching puzzle games, there's only one Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the matching puzzle game that makes you want to come back again and again, which actually isn't a problem because Best Fiends has thousands of fun and exciting puzzles to solve, which means there's always more. We've been playing Best Fiends for over a year now, and it's still part of my daily routine. You can find me playing a quick round before bed, while I'm in line waiting for a Diet Coke, or outside waiting for the dog to do his business. I'm on level 1405, and while I've played other Match 3 games before, they are nothing compared to Best Fiends. I love earning keys in each round that allow me to earn new fiends like my favorite, Napoleon, that keeps the game fun and exciting and makes me wonder what they will think of next. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. 
It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me, and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable, and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now, baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great, gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Robert's bodyguard being questioned by the police and him refusing to do a polygraph. And don't worry, there are more people that police want to speak to. A few days later, another man turns up at the police station with possible information. This is a man by the name of Gary McClarty, who was a former stuntman who worked with Robert in the 70s. And he said that he was once contacted by an associate of Robert's who asked him about getting help for Robert, quote, regarding someone who is bothering his family. Also, I feel like whenever these things go down, people talk to uh, stuntmen. I don't really understand why, yeah. <laughs> but right? It's not the first time I've heard stuntman as like who somebody right. goes to. So Gary meets up with Robert at this local restaurant to discuss things in person. Robert says he's having this problem with this woman who had his baby and was milking him for money. He showed a nude photo of the woman he wanted out of the way and even showed Gary a gun that he had and asked about getting a silencer. He told Gary that he would leave the door unlocked and someone could go in and pop her. Robert also suggested to Gary that the woman could be killed another time down by the water. Robert said that he would set it up so that he was driving and he stopped to go to the bathroom and someone could kill her then or when they were at the restaurant. Robert offered to pay $10,000 for this. A few days later, Gary declined to take the job. After talking to Gary, investigators learned that there was another stuntman who worked with Robert that was also approached about putting a hit on someone. Police go to speak to this man, Ronald, but he wasn't very quick to tell his story. Said he did not want to be a snitch, but he eventually caved. He said on March 12th, 2001, he and a friend met up with Robert at a restaurant. He thought they were meeting up to go over a script, but once they got there, Robert asked if he could speak with him privately. He talked about the issues he was having with his wife and asked if they could work together to come up with a plan to kill her. Robert allegedly showed Ronald a gun and said that it was untraceable and offered it up to him. Ronald told police that at this point, he tried to talk Robert out of this and suggested simply talking to his wife, offering her money, and getting rid of her that way. Ronald already had this pending criminal case, and so he did not want to get involved in this. So he tells Robert, you know, consider getting a prepaid card instead of using your cell phone for things like this. So Robert took that advice and got a prepaid card. Later in March, Robert contacted Ronald again and said he wanted to get rid of Bonnie. This time, he suggested other locations for the murder, including the Grand Canyon, a random motel that was on the route back to L.A., or a campsite. They meet again at a later date, and they spoke more about Robert's desire to have Bonnie killed. At this time, Bonnie's back in L.A., and Robert is really tired of her, according to Ronald. 
Ronald also told police he knew about Earl and knew that Robert had planned to involve him in the murder as well. Earl's job was going to be to dig a hole for Bonnie's body to go into after the murder. Remember, Earl is Robert's bodyguard. On June 19th, police catch up with Earl again, and they searched his apartment in his car. They found a 9mm German handgun in the car and a list of items in the cup holder. The list said two shovels, small sledge, crowbar, 25 auto, get blank gun ready, old rugs, duct tape, Drano, pool acid, lye, plant. Police asked him about this list, and Earl's attorney responded that the list was irrelevant. It was six months old from a time when Robert asked him to repair his pool. He said he never ended up doing the job, and someone else did. He said that part about wanting blanks was because he wanted to take pictures of his Black Hawk revolver with blank bullets inside the gun, and said he didn't know what he meant by a 25 auto. That's great. <laughs> like, right. I just wrote that one. That one was just right. like, you know, playing in my mind. So several months passed and the investigators keep digging. On January 14th, 2002, police talked to Earl again about this list. He had an explanation for all the items on it. Officers continue to interview friends and family of Bonnie and Robert. Bonnie's children, Holly and Glenn, said that their mom had told them in the past that she thought Robert was going to kill her one day. A PI who did work for Robert in the late 80s told officers that sometime after October 1999, so this is very close to the time uh, that Bonnie was murdered, Robert called him and asked him if he could meet up. And then Robert told this PI that he had met a woman and had a one-night stand with her and that she had gotten pregnant. He told the PI that he wanted to, quote, abort her, or if that didn't work, whack her. And the PI said that this is absolutely insane and he doesn't want anything to do with it. So Robert allegedly changed his mind after having this conversation and said that he decided not to kill Bonnie. Another man then turned up to the police named Frank Minucci and he had his story that he was ready to give. He said that he was a former street guy that is involved in things from loan sharking to just other bad guy stuff, as he called it. And he met Robert through their mutual agent, and they became friendly in the late 90s. Frank said that Robert once sent him $500 in cash and then another $500. And then, after he has given him $1,000, said that, hey, by the way, I need a favor from you. And he wanted him to scare Bonnie. He said he didn't really care how he did it or, you know, what lengths he went to to make it happen. Multiple people who spoke with the police confirmed that Robert had been talking about wanting Bonnie out of the picture for a very long time and had even gone so far as to ask people to do it for him. On April 18, 2002, Robert and Earl were both arrested. Robert was charged with murder, solicitation of murder, and conspiracy. He would face two counts of solicitation for asking the two stuntmen to kill Bonnie. Earl was charged with conspiracy, but his charge was later dropped and he never went to trial. Robert's trial began on December 20th, 2004, which is always so crazy to me when they start trials like that close to like a holiday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I know like the court has a, you know, they have their schedule in their system and that's just when your date comes up and it's time for your trial, I yeah. guess. But December 20th, just see, I mean, even for like the attorneys and the judge, it's like, oh, my gosh, does anybody really want to be there that week? That's like a crazy time to go on trial. Well, that and this doesn't seem like a case that's going to be over in one day. I can see if it's like traffic court, but this right. is a murder trial. It seems like this is going to go on and on. Right. So the prosecution said that Robert had the motive to kill Bonnie because it was clear that he literally hated her, but he did want their baby. They said that Robert murdered Bonnie after unsuccessfully trying to find somebody else to do it. 
they pointed out the gun residue that was found on his hands and that nobody in the restaurant even remembered to seeing him going back inside to get the gun that he claims he left in there. But multiple witnesses did say that his grief seemed to be fake. They also presented evidence that in early 2001, Robert asked Earl to keep the list of items used in the murder of Bonnie, and that was the list that the police found in the cup holder in his car. In March of 2001, Robert received a gun from Earl, and that same month, he asked multiple people to murder Bonnie. The defense said that Robert did not shoot Bonnie, and there was no evidence to support that he did. There were no witnesses, and there was so little gun residue that it likely came from his own gun, which he was handling earlier with no, you know, nefarious purposes that night. There was no physical evidence tying Robert to the crime, which, of course, the defense would be stupid not to really, you know, draw attention to the fact that there was no physical evidence to tie him to the crime. Experts later said that throughout the trial, Bonnie was made to look like nothing more than a scam artist who just took advantage of poor old Robert Blake, who was just merely this 71-year-old man. And, you know, they really blamed Bonnie and said that she had trapped Robert by getting pregnant with his baby on purpose. The defense tried to impeach the testimony of Gary, Ronald, and Frank. They cross-examined the men and got Gary to admit to heavy cocaine use a few weeks before he met with Robert. When he would use cocaine, he claimed that he would have delusions and hallucinations, such as believing that he was being followed, believing that he could read people's minds, thinking his phone was bugged, and more. Basically, they were trying to prove that he was unreliable you know, for this testimony. One of Ronald's neighbors testified that he was a meth user and thought the FBI was after him. The defense had Dr. Ronald Siegel, who remember a few weeks ago when we talked about this attorney that taught monkeys how to smoke crack, and we don't entirely understand what that was about. This guy was on the stand to testify, and he testified in this case that someone with an active drug addiction cannot be trusted to tell you the truth about being hired for murder. After hearing all the testimony and looking at all the evidence and lack thereof in some ways, it was time for the jury to deliberate. It took 35 hours for them to reach a verdict. They felt that the two stuntmen were unreliable sources, and they couldn't definitively place the gun in Robert's hands either. So, Robert ended up being acquitted of the murder charge and one of the solicitation charges. The other solicitation charge was dismissed. But that wasn't the end of the legal battles for Robert. In April of 2002, Bonnie's children filed a wrongful death suit against Robert. It didn't go before a jury until November of 2005, and they spent two weeks deliberating before finding that Robert had intentionally caused Bonnie's death. The jury found that Earl did not conspire with or have any part in it. Bonnie's children were awarded $30 million. Robert thought that that was too much, so he appeals the decision. He said that he would be willing to pay $15 million. California Court of Appeals agreed with him that $30 million was too much and ruled that the family would get $15 million instead. Robert later settled with the family for an undisclosed amount. It must have been a decent chunk of change because Robert ended up filing for bankruptcy following the civil court decision. In 2017, Robert found love in a woman he'd known for years and had dated in the past named Pamela Hudak. They got married, but a year later, Robert filed for divorce. Robert is currently 87 years old and is alive and well. And there was this update on Bonnie and Robert's daughter, Rosie. And it turns out that Robert's daughter with a former wife ends up legally adopting her. And they end up having this family unit where Rose um, actually calls what would, I guess, essentially be his, her half-sister, her mom and dad. And 
18 years after her mom is killed, she ends up reaching out to her dad, Robert Blake, and even visits, you know, her mom's grave. And she basically said that she and her dad sat down, looked through old photographs, and talked a little bit about her early childhood, but said she told him, quote, I specifically asked him not to tell me. I don't want to know. Not right now. I don't think I'm ready in regards to her mom's what murder happened, or what right? happened. She didn't want to know. She just wanted to talk to him and sit and uh, look through these memories. So it looks like she's doing really, really well. Um, but yeah, what a what a crazy story. Nobody's ever been convicted of Bonnie's murder. Yeah, that is um, one of the interesting things here. But I can see how he was acquitted based on the evidence that they had. It really yeah. does get you kind of hung up on the gun, you know, that was never traced back to anybody. And it wasn't, you you know, the gun that belonged to Robert. And right. it's all so, I mean, it's a very bizarre case. But I can see how they would acquit him in, the, in this yep. case. But I definitely feel like he had some kind of knowledge about what was going on. Based on what yeah. people have said that, you know, the kind of things that he was talking about and, and asking around about, it, it does seem like, you know, that obviously does not look good for him. So yeah, for sure. And, you know, they, I mean, civil court is different, but he was, you know, had to pay money to Bonnie's family. So there's something to that. But of course, civil is different than criminal cases. Right. And um, yeah, it's interesting, but I can see how they said, you know, you have to acquit him. There, there just wasn't anything directly. Lots of circumstantial stuff, but nothing directly tying him to it. So, yeah. All right, Melissa, that was a very crazy story for this yeah. week. There was a lot going on in this one. I definitely learned a lot that I did not know. As we said, we always joke about I don't know anything about like celebrities at all, but I really did not know any of this. This is like this was one of the crazier, you know, researching cases I, that I feel like we've ever done. Yeah, it's a crazy story. All right, so are we ready to turn the page and move on to the last thing before we go? We are. So for those keeping up, uh, I, we got some comments about this. My son is still listening to Rick Astley, Never Gonna Give You Up, every night on repeat. Um, that has not stopped. So I think we're in week three or week four. And I thought, like, why don't we talk about some songs that would be worse to listen to on repeat? And then maybe a few that are would be okay to listen to on repeat. Maybe I can just get some of these into his psyche. He brought up the never ending song or what the song that never ends the other day. Oh, and no. I was like, so no. help me. We <laughs> Rick Astley all day. I can do this. So anyway, Mandy, we both, I think, picked three songs we would hate to listen to on repeat and three songs we would, wouldn't mind, or at least yes. initially. So do you yeah. want to start with hate or enjoy? Let's start with the ones that we hate. Okay. All right. Do you want to start first? Sure. The okay. first song that I would hate to listen to more than one time, sometimes I can't even stand listening to it one time all the way through, is Barbie Girl. Oh, uh, 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 yeah. Yeah. I actually, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm with you on that one. Yeah, that was one like whenever I heard it on the radio in the last couple of years, I'm like, oh, like it's nostalgic, but I'm like, no, I actually hate this. Song. Right, this right. Terrible. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, my first one is What Does the Fox Say? Uh, I didn't no. understand it when it came out. It looks like a furry convention in the video. I don't understand what's going on. And that <laughs> is just too much for me. I can't take it. Yeah, I don't like that one too much either. Mostly because I just don't understand it. Like like you said, I don't really understand the song. No. Why, why is it I feel it like thing? I'm supposed to be on drugs to listen to it. And that's yeah. what <laughs> So, <laughs> All right. What's your next one? Okay, so another one that I would not want to hear over and over is that song, Blue 
Eiffel 65. Yes. Okay. So I can do that one. That's another one that's a little bit nostalgic when you hear like 30 second clips of it. But, but beyond that, you're just like, okay, this is, this is enough. This is torturous now. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Do you know, mine isn't very like catchy, but it's just that they played it so much and they played it in like grocery stores. Oh, I can barely even say it because I don't want to be stuck in my head. That song, I Knew I Loved You Before I Met You by Savage oh, Garden. Oh, yes. Like, yes. Ugh, it's just so sappy <laughs> and like, I, I just hate it. Like, shut up. No, Savage Garden has a lot of like cringy, just like, ugh, stop it. Like, they love they that remind kind of me, stuff. Yeah, them and Train for some reason, like I get the same vibes from them. I don't know, but I don't want to listen to either of them. Yeah. Some people <laughs> like them and that's totally fine. Uh, but I that song just... I hated it when it came out and I still hate it now. All right. What's your third one? Okay. So my third and final one is kind of a rap-ish song, but it was on all kinds of radio stations several summers ago, probably more than several. It's probably older than I'm thinking it is. That chicken noodle soup song. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you well, don't look it up. It's literally just saying chicken noodle soup over and over. There's some other words that are saying, I think. Chicken but, noodle um, soup? Yes. I already hate it because if you put something like that in, it's just going to be repeating itself. Well, but. I don't. Well, yeah, and I don't like. I don't understand why with like food items, like I, I, don't, right. I don't understand it. You know, why do we have to just keep saying it? Like, thank you for ruining chicken noodle soup for me forever because yeah. of that. <laughs> <laughs> you're sick and somebody offers to bring it. Absolutely not. Not in this house. No. Do not. <laughs> so, my, all right. What's your last one? My last one is there was like I didn't watch American Idol a lot, but there was one season I did watch it, and it was this same year they played this song every time somebody left bad day by daniel powder every time they left they would be, so you had a, and i was like no it's actually more than a bad day their dreams just died why do we have to keep playing this song every two seconds so for some reason it's supposed to be like happy but i'm like if i have a bad day this is going to make it worse it's going to make it so much yeah. worse please don't make me listen to this <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness so mandy what are the three songs that you could listen to on repeat Okay, so I have three, and I'll just list them all off really quick. Okay. We don't have to take turns. Um, yeah. But then I was thinking, if this is for lulling your child to sleep, one of my choices is probably very terrible because this is a song that is very hype, and um, I could listen to it over and over again. I mostly listen to it when I'm doing cardio or working out because it just gets me going, but it's a Pitbull song. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. It's called The Anthem. So if you um, like Pitbull and like that song, then you'll know why I feel like I could just keep listening to it. It's very okay. upbeat and very positive. I would not want to listen to it while my kid was trying to go to sleep, though. So I misunderstood the directions if that was That's what all right. No, for. no, no. Mine mine aren't uh, like calming songs because he's never going to pick those. It's going right. to be hype songs. So oh, you, perfect, you right. did it right. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, and my second one that I would not mind listening to is Vision of Love by Mariah Carey. That's, That's one of my favorite one. songs by her. Yeah. And I will sing that song as loud. I mean, at the top of my lungs, I can't sing. I cannot sing, especially not like Mariah, but I will bust my vocal cords singing that song over and over again. I love it so much. So I would be okay with that one. And then my last one is a song that I am obsessed with. It's called Midnight Hour and it's by a group called SDIB. It's a little reggae-ish, a little Uh ska-ish. So you probably would hate it, but um, it's a very happy song as well. It's very beachy, but it's one of my favorites and I already do listen to it on repeat on occasion. Nice. Okay. Those are good. I like the Mariah Carey one a lot. I could get behind that one. 
So mine are More Than a Feeling by Boston, which I don't know why I like that song. It just makes me I like happy. that song too. Yeah, it just, I don't know. Like, And then it was on some show I liked and it was like, a, I don't know, it just makes me happy. Uh, the next one is definitely a hype song and sh- please don't let my, well, no, actually I wouldn't mind if you did it. Uh, Best of You by Foo Fighters. That one gets very yelly, oh, yeah. but it's just fun. I like, I don't know. I just like that one. Oh, these and are good my, ones. Yeah, and my last one is Rick Astley, Never Gonna Give You Up, because yeah. <laughs> currently I've made it like three or four weeks, so, so now I you're can committed. do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so funny. All right, guys, that was the episode for this week. We hope you guys enjoyed it and that you have gotten your summer off to a good start. I think pretty much everybody's kids are out of school now, right? Even up in I North? I think so. Yeah. I think maybe. everybody's out of school. So yeah, so we hope you guys are enjoying the very beginning of your summer and that you have... Lots of fun things planned coming up. Yeah. And if not, then we'll be here next week to keep you company while you're (laughs) not doing anything fun. (laughs) That's my life. I got it. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.